Hello, and welcome to the Not-A-Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome back, one last time, this year, to our thoughts on House of the Dragon. Today we're covering the finale of Season 1, The Black Queen. And looking back, I I think this is just an incredible finale to an incredible season of television. This is, I'm going to say it's it's equal to, if not better than, the best seasons of Game of Thrones. And it has been disheartening, though not at all surprising, to see the discourse around House of the Dragon basically collapse over the last few weeks. And while I'm going to miss this show, maybe it'll be good to get such a long break in between this season and the next one. It gives us all time to breathe. We'll be left with this extremely solid hour of television, which essentially summed up the entire season from Rhaenyra's perspective, calling back to shots and events from the first couple episodes to reckon with how far we've come, before leaping aggressively ahead into the new status quo that will define season two. Yeah, you nailed it, buddy, on all fronts. Thrones is back, baby. Ow! Even in my most optimistic hopes, I did not expect this show to be this good. Like, I generally expect HBO to have quality productions, and they had a lot of infrastructure left over from the previous show, which is a huge plus. And I'm not even a season 8 hater. But the show still surpassed expectations, providing us with some fucking meat each week to really chew on, to digest. Not all of it goes down perfectly, but it is the type of art I want, I look for, I crave. It's dense, it's confident, it asks its audience to think hard. Can't be more thrilled. But, as you say, the discourse has really soured in the past few weeks. I personally don't really bother with the team black versus team green stuff, and I don't want to take away from anyone's fun. But some of the behavior I've seen in the last couple weeks has been unsettling. Anyone calling for showrunners or producers or writers' jobs, it's not only uncalled for, but kind of misunderstands how a writer's room works and a giant collaborative production such as House of of the Dragon works. Singling out individuals to be fired just because they don't have the same exact read on a character as you or aren't confirming your priors is kind of kid stuff. This is an adult show. And I also just want to say, be kinder to each other and think about the words you use with your friends. I know things like whore and rape are part and parcel with the story, but, you know, we should be a little more considerate before just dropping those words in someone's replies, especially over, say, an Amon shitpost or something like that. We all still have triggers and traumas, and we can all afford to be kinder over, kinder to each other over this, a fictional story about fictional characters <laughs> and their fictional monsters. <laughs> but I'll stop with my preachiness there. How about we pivot to something fun? You want to rank these episodes? We did promise this to the people, didn't we? Earlier in the season, we- I kept threatening this. We're finally going to actually rank the episodes of season one of House of the Dragon. So here for me, number one, Lord of the Tides. Number two, Princess and the Queen. Number three... Driftmark. Number four, The Black Queen. Number five, Heirs of the Dragon. Number six, Second of His Name. Number seven, King of the Narrow Sea. Number eight, We Light the Way. Number nine, The Rogue Prince. And number ten, The Green Council. What about you, sir? Ours are basically pretty similar, except I just have one shuffled up higher and it just kind of knocks everything down. But for me, it's number one, The Lord of the Tides. Number two, The Princess and the Queen. Three, Driftmark. 
four, the Black Queen. So this we does have sound this, familiar. Yes. We have the same exact top four. This is where it gets different. My fifth is the Green Council, which we kind of oh, talked about last week that I'm more of a fan. It's true. Resonated. Um, then Heirs of the Dragon, Second of His Name, We Light the Way, King of the Narrow Sea, and finally The Rogue Prince. Um, so most of ours line up. There are a couple episodes I'm higher on and y- you on the other hand. But I think it kind of does seem like the back end of the season was, or it really kind of like the middle like the third quarter of this right. season was the best one. Exactly. So episodes six, seven, and eight. Looking back, that is just a, a bulletproof run of television. Mm-hmm. That is a that's an all timer run right there. All great stuff. The worst episode on both our lists is, are still both really good. Rewatching six, seven, and eight is going to be a real pleasure. So this episode opens up with a bit of n- nostalgia for the old show, A Map of Westeros. It's the painted table at Dragonstone, and we find Luke Valerian, played by Elliot Grihalt, fingering the location of Driftmark, his quote-unquote birthright. I love how the first shot is of Winterfell and the North on the table, which is of course meaningful to us, the Stark-loving audience, but reiterates that the real war will be in the North whenever the Long Night comes, and Rhaenyra will have to shore up the alliances in the North. To win the South, she must go North. With Corliss's illness hanging over him, Luke tells his mother Rhaenyra he is not suited to be the next Lord of the Tides. The Sea Snake is a great sailor, maybe the greatest. Meanwhile, Luke goes for the vomit bag on board. It's similar to Aegon in the last episode, an admission that they aren't suited for the role their bloodline quote-unquote entitles them to. Rhaenyra, when confronted with the fact that she got to choose her fate, says she was frightened, that she struggled with it and had to earn it. I do look askance at her saying, Viserys helped me prepare to rule, because I sure as shit didn't see that. (laughs) Me neither. Me neither. but, But I do think the lie is not unkindly meant in giving a pep talk to her son. And in setting up this episode's finish, I do like how well they set up Lucerys as just a kid in this episode. His chat with his mother, his practicing swords a bit later with Jaceres, and eventually his trip to Storm's End are all shot and performed in a way that you never lose sight that this is a little boy, even at age 14, and should not be in situations like this. And he's got a hero worship thing going on with his mother. As Luke says, she seems perfect to him. And I love her response. A smile, a hug, and a reassurance that she is anything but. We know that. We've seen Rhaenyra make mistakes, or just act in ways that advance some of her interests at the cost of others. She's a human, like any other human, and none of us are perfect. But Luke wasn't watching the previous episodes, just as A Song of Ice and Fire characters aren't reading each other's POV chapters. For Luke, Rhaenyra is this untouchable standard, the realm's delight, who was always there for him and will always do the right thing, just as he talks about Corliss as being the legendary greatest sailor who ever lived. Well, that might actually be true, but the point is he's building up these people as, as figures of legend and myth that he can't possibly be like. And it makes sense when you look at the other influences in his life. His relationship with his older brother Jace isn't perfect, as we see in this episode. Lenor was never fully present. Neither was Harwin. Neither is Damon. Luke has had three partial father figures, never really what he needed. And he feels alienated from the role he's supposed to play, the person he's supposed to be, the heir to Driftmark. As the episode opens, he's looking down at it on the painted table. And that's all it really is to him. It's a name on a map. It's an abstraction. It has nothing to do with who he is or what he wants. Luke is worried that he'll have to take over soon because the sea snake is supposedly dying. The irony being, of course, that Luke is the one about to die, whereas Corliss lasts longer than pretty much every other character in this story. 
Rhaenyra tells him that this is a destiny imposed upon him. It's his duty, not his choice. Luke shoots back that she chose the crown, right? That's the story you told us, Mom. Good old Grampy Viserys let you choose to be his heir. Emma Darcy really sells the pain of this moment, one familiar to any parent. When your children repeat back the little white lies you told them as if they're gospel truth. Rhaenyra has to dig beneath the stories here to tell Luke that she was terrified and uncertain, just like he is now. You can only be brave when you're afraid. As Gren says in the Sam chapter we're going to be covering tomorrow, everyone is just pretending to be brave for everyone else. Sir Laurent Marbrand heralds the arrival of Rhaenys, who seeks audience with Damon and Rhaenyra. Sir Laurent is essentially making his first real appearance here. He may have been backgrounded elsewhere. And there's a great shot in the sequence when Rhaenys moves from the opposite end of the painted table towards Rhaenyra. Laurent, in soft focus, behind her follows along. While there shouldn't be any threat from Rhaenys to Rhaenyra, if anyone is in striking distance of the prince or queen, then the Kingsguard should be in striking distance of that person. While Rhaenyra is expecting news of the sea snake, Rhaenys instead has other news. The king is dead, and what's more, there's another king. As soon as Rhaenys says that second part, Rhaenyra immediately starts wincing in pain, grabbing her pregnant belly. Rhaenys gives the whole truth. Allison's proposal, the crowning in the dragon pit, the masses cheering. Damon, having been mad on Twitter all week, asks why Rhaenys didn't burn all the greens. That war isn't mine to begin, which satisfied me since that was basically my reading of last episode's ending. But going back to something we talked about up top, understanding a story like this sometimes also requires patience. Sometimes answers we'd like to hear in the moment come later. That is the nature of television. I think Rhaenys' argument is more than justified, and it's pretty much how I read the scene, like I said. But anyways, Rhaenys encourages flight. The greens are coming for Dragonstone, but that's not all. The babe is coming, as Rhaenyra finds blood between her legs. She she winced at every bit of news delivered by Rhaenys, and we see the tears of betrayal and of pain flowing from Emma Darcy's eyes. I like the little setup that everyone is expecting Rhaenys to announce Corlys' death, but instead it's Viserys' death. And all they have is a moment to mourn Viserys and his kind heart, as Rhaenys says, before they have to move on to politics, the humanity of it swallowed up by the war. Yet their personalities still matter because they determine their reactions. Rhaenyra zeroes in on the important information. That the Greens not only crowned Aegon, they did so in public, making him look like the clear heir. Damon immediately gets paranoid, accusing the Hightowers of murdering Viserys, and then kind of implying that Rhaenys might have bent the knee to Aegon in order to escape the capital alive when he says, and yet you are here. Damon certainly has his reasons to suspect the worst of the Greens. Everything he saw when he and Rhaenyra returned to King's Landing reminded him of how much the Hightowers have always hated him, and how much he's always hated them. But come on, man, you saw the state Viserys was in. He was on the way out. He didn't need murdering. It's also beyond the pale to even implicitly accuse Rhaenys. If she was a green loyalist now, why would she be here at all? It's not like she came with terms. That's Otto's job later in the episode. And totally agreed about Rhaenys' explanation of her action or lack of action at King's Landing. It wasn't her war to start. We see the idea that she should have torched them all reflected in Daemon, and it's an ugly thing to witness. So already we're seeing the escalation that will bring us step by step to open war at the end of the episode driven first by Damon, and only later by Rhaenyra. The following sequence is twofold. 
Rhaenyra, her handmaidens, and Maester Gerardus trying to prepare for this premature birth, while Daemon is leading a war council around the painted table. The opening episode of the season juxtaposed a traumatic childbirth with men playing at war in the frolic of tournament. Here, a stillbirth is combined with men planning a war, the real thing about to start. It's, a, it's consistent with the theme of the story that a woman's battlefield in patriarchal Westeros is the birthing bed. The men will bleed out there and the women in here. But unlike the tourney and heirs of the dragon, there is no segregation between these two scenes. Emma's pain was drowned out by the cheers at the tourney, too far away from any of her loved ones save Viserys to actually hear. But in the bowels of Dragonstone, Daemon's strategizing can't be separated from Rhaenyra's screams just off screen. And the men gathered around the table can't focus on the plan while the queen screams in pain. Because these things are linked. This is a war over bloodlines, over heirs, over successions. Each child on both sides of the battle is another successor, another soldier in the wars to come. I do like the maester and the handmaidens trying to coax Rhaenyra to bed. She's too busy stumbling around and writhing in pain. They highlight that Rhaenyra has given birth successfully five times before, so they got this, right? I like this point because it highlights the risks that come with pregnancy, and even though you may have given birth successfully before, each one comes with its own risks and possible trauma. In a way, it's analogous to the broken man speech. It may be the first battle or the hundredth battle. It can happen at any time. Mm, that's a great comparison. And yeah, I love the idea that as Rhaenyra is trying to birth a child, you have Daemon like in literally the next room trying to birth the war. A war, as you say, in large part being fought over the meaning of birth itself. Which kind of birth is valid? Which kids count? And a very interesting contrast with the first episode, which, as you said, had that cross-cutting I love so much between the private and the public. Here, the walls almost literally break down, the public sphere collapsing into the private one. There's nowhere to hide. Emma Darcy is doing an incredible job, especially physically. Rhaenyra is moving around as if stopping will kill her. She somehow comes off both stiff and fluid, like she's collapsing inward. And it's it's so well acted when she just can't bear anyone else's touch and she just she runs away from them. It's so just really raw. And even though I've, I've never given birth, uh, I, I know that that feeling in the moment of intense physical pain where you feel like the touch of another human being is just going to be the absolute last straw. And Emma Darcy, they do a great job getting that across. Yeah, Emma Darcy's had two incredibly harrowing childbirth scenes to perform in this season of television, and both of them have been amongst the best scenes of the entire show. It's a reason that both of those episodes are near the top of my ranking. Even in her labor pains, Rhaenyra calls for Jaceris and Lucerys. She updates them on the death of the king. Luke specifically looks crestfallen over this, before speaking of the Greens usurping the throne. Jace, the heir, feels like it's his time to step up. Shades of Rob in A Game of Thrones when Bran has fallen and Cat is glued to his bedside. Rob will see to the appointments, and Jace will see to Damon's war council. But Rhaenyra calls after him. You are now the heir to whatever claim I have, and nothing should be done without my involvement. As Rhaenyra continues to call for Damon, Sir Lauren tries to conjole Damon into seeing his niece-wife. Damon shuts him down with the stare, but Jace and Luke roll up and make it plain. Rhaenyra forbids any military action without her consent. Damon takes the rebuff in stride. He still orders the raven sent, but then makes a display of power and loyalty for Jace to understand. 
He calls the remaining Kingsguard, Sir Stefan and Sir Laurent, to the Dragonmont, where he says some stuff, but really lets Caraxes do the talking. Either you bow to us, or you don't. The latter will earn you a quick death. Bowing now and betraying later, well, that won't be so quick. And I love the visuals here, Damon frame right with the bloodworm subsuming the background around him, facing the same direction. Where does man end and dragon begin? Damon blurs that line most of all among our Targaryen cast, something we'll see again when he charms Vermithor later this episode. And right before Jace and Luke are summoned into the castle, we get this very quick scene with them out on the sand. It's quick, but it, it stood out to me, where we see that Jace is, is kind of taking on the Kristen Cole role of pushing the younger kid too hard. And, you know, no doubt Jace is concerned that his little brother isn't learning. But as Stefan Darkland says, beating Luke into submission won't help him learn. It'll just set up Jace as another untouchable ideal for Luke, like their mother, someone he can't match because he's just intrinsically not good enough. I think this might stand out to me just because we're, we're doing a Sam episode next on the main cast, and that is very much how Sam thinks about himself. Mm-hmm. Jace's frustration is important to establish that he's not perfect either. Like Damon, it's all boiling over and turning inward, finding any outlet it can. Rhaenyra, even in her grief and anger and pain, is the only one showing restraint, as Rhaenys will say later, saying nothing is to be done yet. Damon accepts his wife's authority, but still manages to assert his own by personally reaffirming Stefan and Lawrence's vows in the most dramatic way possible. He's showing off Caraxes's power to the knights, blurring it with his own, as you say, which is reflected in the editing between them. He's also showing off to Jace, though, saying that this is how you take power, regardless of how much your mother might want to hold back. It's possible that Jace is learning from Damon's hard-edged model here as well as Kristen's, and I'm interested to see how Jace carries his own plot next season. I'm interested to see both the actor and the character kind of carry their own plot next season. I think these, these darker and more complicated bits of him we're seeing now, I think, lay the groundwork for that really well. As Damon continues to orate, we cut back to Rhaenyra as she continues to struggle around her room. She's not letting her handmaidens help her, and in the end, she pulls the stillbirth child out of her own womb, blood and fetus sloshing to the floor in one of the most brutal scenes I've ever seen on television. Rhaenyra's bloodied hands pick up her dead child, cradles it to her breast, while the handmaidens look in horror. Damon finally shows up to see his wife cradling the child, but we immediately cut to them separated. Just like she called the handmaidens off, Rhaenyra calls off the Silent Sisters and prepares the babe's body herself. Meanwhile, Damon goes out to the beach and falls to his knees, recreating famous internet meme number 765 of being sad on the beach. Rhaenyra has constantly been in combat with her gender and gender roles in Westerosi patriarchy, something the young actor made clear in the pilot when her mother Emma said that was their role. But there is a pushback against boundaries here too in doing the Silent Sisters job for them. It's their job to look the stranger in the eye, but like Rhaenys before her, she's not one to look away. Those quick cuts to a dragon screaming as Rhaenyra gives birth, further intercut with Damon's speech, that's that's one of my favorite parts of the episode. And this is one of those cases where you can see something I've, I've thought a lot about as I get older, that editing really is the core of film and television as art forms. It's how you juxtapose concepts. It's how you put action and thought and words all in dialogue with each other visually. Does that dragon represent Rhaenyra's feelings? Or Damon's? Or does it represent the stillborn baby? Yes to all of the above, and probably more layers I'm not even thinking of. It's a fluid image, abstract and ambiguous on purpose. You can apply it to anything, like the prophecy that is the Song of Ice and Fire. The quick cuts build up the tension and fear before the hideous release of that blood pouring out of Rhaenyra. 
and all the metaphors dead end in the raw, real sight of the stillbirth, covered in scales. Again, in another callback to the pilot episode, we have a funeral scene for a young babe who didn't survive childbirth, with most of Team Black in attendance. Ramin Jawadi's score really sings here, hitting the somber sad tones as we linger on the pain. The camera firmly squares up Lucerus Valerian to here, the next child who will fall in the conflict. Sir Eric Cargyle arrives at this moment to offer up Viserys' crown and freely pledges his sword to Queen Rhaenyra. I love the whole no lands, father no children bit in his vows. It's nearly word for word with the Night's Watch vows, which we know Queen Visenya explicitly based the vows of the Kingsguard on when she created the idea during Aegon the Conqueror's rule. Daemon takes the crown and places it on Rhaenyra's head in a scene very similar to Daemon placing the crown on Viserys' head, bowing down and proclaiming her, my queen. There's a great shot from behind Rhaenyra, seeing the back of her hair and crown in focus, but then the camera tilts up, her head goes into soft focus as we start seeing the funeral attendees bow down to their new queen, including her and Daemon's children. There's so much to metaphorically read into the scene. The book lines that stand out to me are, to crown her is to kill her, especially in light of this dual coronation funeral ceremony. But I think it also tells us what the cost of this war will be dead children. It will start because of the children, children who absorb the prejudices of their parents, and those that suffer the most in the end will be the children of Westeros. As you say, the score does a lot of the work here. This is maybe a really beautiful episode in terms of the music, maybe the best part though is in this scene. It's all keening and sorrowful strings. It does more than dialogue ever could, especially in a moment where you're trying to capture a moment in which characters are out of words, out of things to say, and just the music just speaks for them. And then we get the restoration of rhetoric with Sir Eric. Vows to give us strength. Procedures and protocols to reassure us that this is legitimate power. We are doing the right thing despite, or because of, our pain. I love what you were saying about the coronation emerging from the ashes of the funeral. And thinking about it, yeah, as pointing to Rhaenyra's death. Obviously pointing to Viserys' death because they're rising from his ashes to uh, proclaim Rhaenyra his heir. But above all the kids, that the war starts with dead kids and will lead back there in the end. And here we have a knight swearing, among other things, to bear no children himself, to kind of cut himself out of that loop entirely. And I was, I've been thinking more and more as we go through this season that my bet, I'll throw down my marker here, that the final scene of House of the Dragon is going to be the destruction of the remaining dragon eggs and little dragon babies. Whether by Aegon Third or the Maesters or both, whatever the conspiracy they go with turns out to be. Just to emphasize that even the dragons themselves were kids once, and even they die. Oh, I love that prediction. I am going to sign on wholeheartedly to All right. We got it. We got two people on this bed. Everyone else is welcome. (laughs) With a newly crowned queen, we return to the painted table, this time set aflame, so all the castles and keeps are illuminated like lava. Stannis apparently never knew about this feature (laughs) or realized it would be really hard to bang Melisandre on it if it was super hot. Well, hard for him, the Red Woman likely would be fine with it. Be a selling point for Melisandre, yeah. You assume Stannis lost the secret of how to do this along with the prophecy. (laughs) This is just one more thing that didn't make it out of this generation. Rhaenyra, you can tell, is just a bit new to this. Or maybe the people around her are. Probably a bit of both. She has to tell her personal personal guard to hold back as she approaches the table, and she seems surprised her cupbearer Reyna is ready with wine for her. Again, we get very strong acting from Emma Darcy, more subtle than the previous scenes. As she told Luke, she's not perfect. She doesn't automatically know how to be this way. She has to fake it until she makes it. And there's all that pressure of being the queen, the center of gravity. Everyone's just waiting on you. 
You could argue that pressure is what broke down her father. What's it going to do with her? Damon stands on the opposite end of the table, ready to run down the entire military situation. He's been busy, and he lets Rhaenyra know how. Several houses have already declared for Rhaenyra, Bahraman and Celtigar, Darklin and Massey. When the topic of River Run is broached, Rhaenyra talks about Old Grover in a way that Catelyn Stark talks about Walder Frey. Old and fickle, easily swayed, and will need to be convinced of strength or given something sweet if we expect anything out of him. Damon is usurping some of Rhaenyra's command here. When he says he will go to River Run himself, Rhaenyra just shoots him a look. I give orders here, or at least we make plans together. I love how all the men and boys around the table are pushing for war, where Rhaenyra is not, and the men are quick to move the pieces around the painted table. It's just a game to them still. I also love the focus of the conversation being House Stark, House Tully, House Baratheon, even a bit of Aaron. It feels like all the houses that drove Game of Thrones Season 1, who are mostly absent from this series, are getting explicit mention. It tells us how radically different the political context is at the time of A Song of Ice and Fire proper, while also telling the audience, oh yeah, your faves are coming. The Valerian loyalties are asked about next, Rhaenys defers to Corlys, who seems to be on the mend and on the move, and then the Lannisters. But all this talk of men is moot, says Bartimos Celtigar. We have dragons. Damon spells out the dragon math as soon as the topic is broached. He says they have Syrax, Caraxes, and Meles, which instantly gets an eyebrow raised from Rhaenys. Who said my dragon is on your side? Then Damon gets to the various kids. All three strong bastards have dragons, and we even got get a Moondancer shout-out, plus Vermithor and Silverwing, and the wild dragons. So many dragons. Even Rhaenyra pointing out that none of these dragons have seen war doesn't stop him from listing them off. I do love how the dragon talk transitions into Damon saying they need to set up shop at Harrenhal, the spot melted down by dragons in the first place. But it is a great strategic spot, and Damon gets to be like Tywin Lannister at the end of A Game of Thrones. It's a strategic, centrally located spot that acts as a bulwark between the Westerlands and the Riverlands. The Riverlands are the allies they need, as the West and the Reach will fall in line behind the Greens. Harrenhal's at the center of things, which is why you want to have it, but it's also why it's so hard to hold it, as we keep saying over and over with Harrenhal. And that's a good catch about Rhaenyra glancing at Daemon whenever he gets ahead of himself, when he declares that he's going to fly to River Run, and that Corlys must be on his way to declare for Rhaenyra, which is, again, kind of a subtle threat to Rhaenys. There's a reason she's still wearing her armor in this room. Rhaenyra is more diplomatic, praising the strength of the Valerian fleet, saying no one would dare turn against them, and emphasizing how glad they are that Corlys has recovered. This is why Damon made as many enemies as he did friends. This is part of why the Hightowers hate him so much. He doesn't play the game, you're a dragon, be a dragon, as he basically told his brother, and that can be refreshing, but it can also get in the way. You need a steadier hand at the wheel because there are so many different kinds of power at play. Naval power and land power, marriage pacts and political alliances. The mention of the Starks sticking to their oaths is there to make us think of Ned, of course, but also of the Starks holding the North together against the Winter, which ties back into the power of the prophecy. You have to use every tool in your toolbox, and you have to know when to use each tool. Mm -hmm. That can be hard to do when you are tempted to use one tool and one tool only. Dragons. As the conversation turns toward dragons, we cut back and forth between close-ups of Rhaenyra and Daemon, no longer facing away like they were earlier when they were grieving, but toward each other, as if carrying on a silent argument, and as if there's no one else in the room. Rhaenyra protests, but Daemon outright interrupts to list off their dragons, claimed and otherwise. 
They greatly outnumber the green dragons, and this is part of how Team Rhaenyra claims to be the more authentic scions of House Targaryen. But Daemon doesn't even bother responding to Rhaenyra's objections, that their dragons don't have combat experience, like you said, and that they don't have anyone to claim the riderless one, so how's that gonna work? All Daemon can think about is putting green heads on spikes. And then lo and behold, his least favorite of the greens arrives at Dragonstone. We get news of a single ship approaching Dragonstone, flying a green Targaryen banner. Daemon immediately order everyone to their posts and orders a watch on the skies in case dragons happen. Again, we cut to Rhaenyra's face as she sees Daemon giving orders that should be starting with her. And she's also noticing, I'm sure, that these people are quick to follow and listen to Daemon, the only one of them who has known actual war. While the episode so far has really been hitting home the parallels with episode 1, the scene on the Dragonstone Causeway is episode 2 Redux, as Otto once again confronts Daemon, and once again Rhaenyra makes a loud entrance with Cyrax after everyone has gathered. She parks her dragon right behind the greens, and boldly walks between them as she takes her place in front of Daemon. Yeah, really strong shot selection here, so you get all these, these framing and blocking choices you see that directly echo episode 2. The stare down on the bridge, everyone preparing to pull their swords out. And this isn't just an Easter egg to reward you for having watched the whole season. It's a reminder that these dynamics have been building up under the surface for a long time. This was a confrontation they were all expecting in one form or another. So much has changed, but here we all are again, right back where we were. Otto brings not just terms, but a narrative to this meeting. He repeatedly reinforces King Aegon Targaryen, second of his name, and frames his terms as wisdom and peace. He reinforces that Aegon has all the trappings of power, crown, sword, name, the blessing of the faith. Otto lays out the terms, which all things considered are good terms, and you can see Daemon realizes that Rhaenyra may be interested in them, so he's quick with the insult saying they won't serve a usurping cunt of a king like Aegon. I love that line, and I, I love that they gave Otto the line from, from Fire and Blood. Every symbol of legitimacy belongs to him, him being Aegon. What matters, as Varys tells us, is what people believe, and Aegon now looks like the king in the eyes of many people. If there is no platonic, objective core to power... Well, then it's all about who has the sword and the crown and the anointing oils of the faith, the things the kings are supposed to have. And Aegon got to all those things first. And this is clearly a dynamic George is interested in because he keeps recreating it. We saw this same thing with Stannis and Renly. Stannis has the legal claim and more leadership experience, but Renly looks like charming young Robert Reborn, and he has the blushing beautiful bride Marjorie at his side. I mean, those two look like they emerged whole from a fairy tale, and that counts for a lot. Same goes for Danny versus young Griff. Danny has the better legal claim, assuming young Griff isn't who he thinks he is, and Danny has had to actually try and put her ideas into practice. But will that matter to the people of King's Landing when they already have their Targaryen restoration in the form of Varus's perfect prince, every part of his image sculpted for maximum PR benefit? Otto thinks of his terms as generous. You get to keep Dragonstone, you get to keep Driftmark, you get pardons for all your little underlings. But the sticking point is that the younger boys, Aegon III and Viserys II, would serve as squire and cupbearer respectively to Aegon II in King's Landing, which basically makes them hostages against their parents' good behavior. Those aren't just Rhaenyra's boys, they're Daemon's boys, and once more he exceeds his authority by speaking in his queen's place. On one hand, he is absolutely right about Aegon II being the worst, and I too would be outraged at the thought of turning my sons over to the Greens as hostages. On the other hand, Damon is still escalating a dangerous situation, and it's a very telling choice of words when he says he would rather feed his sons to the dragons than give them over to the greens. 
We're on Dragonstone and he's starting to sound a lot like Stannis. Remember how Alistair Florent tries to make peace by betrothing Shireen to Tommen, only for Davos to say that Stannis would, well, sooner see Shireen dead? Our kids are only pawns to move, like the pieces on the painted table. They're only vessels for our own anger, our own grief, and our own pain. Rhaenyra walks up to Otto as the Kingsguard all grab their sword hilts. Kingsguard on both sides, mind you, with a very deliberate cut between Eric on Team Rhaenyra and Arik on Team Alicent, or Team Aegon. She rips the hand of the kingpin from Otto and throws it down behind her, seemingly at the feet of Damon, if inadvertently. But this is when Orwell hands over a ripped page from a book Rhaenyra and Alicent studied years ago. I think it's cute that the lesbians still pass notes in class. The passage itself on the page is about Nymeria, the one the girls talked about way back in that first episode. The very first words on the page are lashed together and talks about taking on the coming storm. I imagined young Rainier and Alicent viewed, viewed themselves as being bound together, flying into a storm of men dictating their course. It hits a note with Rhaenyra, an earnest olive branch from Alicent. Clearly the Green Queen was holding on to this for decades, holding out hope for a real friendship again with Rhaenyra. It brings her to tears, but again, Damon can't keep his mouth shut. He threatens to cut off Otto's manhood and feed it to the goats, or close enough. Damon tells Sir Eric to take Otto, and everyone finally draws their swords, Syrax roaring as her own version of unsheathing. Rhaenyra orders her side stand down, and that Alicent will have her answer on the morrow. That ripped out page makes for such a great contrast with all the trappings of power they're talking about. The crowns, and the swords, and the dragons. All of those are just ways of taking the longing embedded into this page and externalizing it, as anger at the world that won't let you live the life you want. The invocation of Nymeria specifically makes me think about Laenor's wistful desire to escape to the sea, which Corlys has also tried to do. It's the same thing Kristen said, let's escape over the horizon. But Corlys has to come home in this episode, Kristen has made his choices, <laughs> and it's too late for Alicent and Rhaenyra to escape the coming doom together. As you say, the very fact that Alicent has held onto this page all these years speaks to her enduring love for Rhaenyra. A different version of her would have burned it by now. It's another echo of the early episodes, here to make us think about how nothing and everything has changed. How the characters themselves can't even keep track of how things got so bad. Remember this book? Remember when this was all we were, all we wanted to be? How did we get here, ready to kill each other? More war counseling follows, and the debate about dragons rages on. Damon is insistent that they have more dragons, but Rhaenyra reiterates that everywhere the dragons dance, everything burns. This is a slight role reversal from Fire and Blood, where Damon says dragons can kill dragons and they should be cautious about using them unprepared. In the ongoing dialectic between book and show, I can see perhaps why the male authors in universe would attribute the quote-unquote good counsel to Damon, given the book's slant against Rhaenyra specifically and women broadly. Rhaenyra has to order the room cleared because her calls to not bleed the realm are not being absorbed by Damon. Great shot of Rhaenys leaving last, watching Damon and Rhaenyra with a bemused smile on her face. It oddly reminds me of Roose Bolton leaving one of Rob Council's war, co uh, war tents in season two, giving a look back at Rob and Talisa before going about his business. I like that a lot. It's that same kind of chilly, sardonic attitude. Obviously, a little less murderous in Rhaenys' case, but that same, that same sense of being slightly outside the scene. And you've noted before how Rhaenys is often in the observer role. And I guess you could say it makes her more passive than the other characters in this episode, but I think it's appropriate. 
she has gone through her own version of this and recognizes it happening all over again. She's almost in the author's position, or the audience who's read Fire and Blood. We know how this turns out. And Rhaenyra seems to know it too. When dragons go to war, she says, everything burns. You can't differentiate. They're not as focused as the Shadow Babies, which kill one target and then vanish. Dragons are fire made flesh. They embody escalation. They're force multipliers, so they're dangerous for the same reason they're so tempting. Can't we just use them to kill our enemies and be done with it? I think about Galadriel's answer to Sam in Lord of the Rings when he says that she ought to take the ring, get rid of Mordor, take care of business in Middle-earth. It would start there, she says, but it would not end there, alas. Rhaenyra shows a similar perspective here. My duty is to peace as long-term as I can make it, not to my right to sit my ass on the Iron Throne. John says something similar in A Dance with Dragons, that the Night's Watch did not take vows to defend every inch of one specific king's territory. Damon has a point that the Greens are forcing their hand, they are essentially at war already, but again he is defying Rhaenyra in public, which undercuts her authority. And Rhaenyra has a point, after she clears the room, that Damon cares more about taking his vengeance against the Hightowers than he does about what comes next. In private, the conversation turns to the Song of Ice and Fire, and it becomes clear Damon was never clued in on Aegon's prophecy. Rhaenyra is preoccupied with keeping the realms as one, but Damon grabs her by the throat. Dreams didn't make us kings, dragons did. Real physical power. Not words, not omens, not portents. This was one of the more controversial parts of the episode, and the, the build-up to it, because of course the episode leaked and a lot of people were talking about certain scenes, including this one. And like a lot of controversial moments in TV, and especially this show, it makes more sense in context than it does in isolation. Damon is already grief-stricken, filled with vengeful rage, and frustrated that Rhaenyra is holding him back. Now he hears a phrase he's clearly never heard before, the Song of Ice and Fire, the coming darkness in the north. To him, Rhaenyra sounds like Viserys, a dreamer, someone lost in signs and portents. That might be the worst case scenario for Damon, a total detachment from reality. He's picturing Rhaenyra building her own model Valyria, more lost in the idea of her perfect kingdom than the reality of it, which, in Damon's mind, is that the dragons are the true foundation of Targaryen power. They made us kings, not dreams. We use them, or we lose them. But as Rhaenyra points out, the real reason he lashes out so violently about that is that Viserys never told Damon about this, which means at some level Viserys never took Damon seriously, not as much as he did Rhaenyra. Damon is still fighting the last war, against his brother as much as his in-laws, and his pride has been pricked by the reality that Rhaenyra has more power than him now prophetically as well as politically. Everyone's the main character of their own story, as George has said. What do people do when they realize they might be in someone else's story instead? Stannis is basically an explicitly cautionary tale about where that leads. <laughs> Damon is falling down the same abyss here. It's funny that Stannis has that book line, or the show line, I will not be a page in someone else's history book, because that's really exactly Perfect what line. he is. Yep, exactly. And that's that's like the I think that's the core interesting idea of his character. And I think Damon is experiencing that emotion kind of all at once here. Like, oh, am I really just a secondary character in the grand myth of Rhaenyra Targaryen saving the world? Is that really who I am? And he doesn't want to be that. Yeah, he's the king consort. Exactly. Corlys and Rhaenys have a brief scene where they somewhat reconcile, even though Rhaenys is not happy with Corlys sailing off to war six years ago in what seems to be a thing that he regularly does. She also lets him know that Aegon is king and Vaemon dead. 
In these moments, Corliss looks back at his own ambitions and that of his brother with regret. Because of all that, their family has known more death than it should have. Corliss wants to say fuck them all. He wants to put not political in his dating profile, not realizing that in itself is a political position. But Raina says they can't extricate themselves from it. They are in it. Their grandchildren, both Truly and those just in name, are now heirs to Driftmark, the Iron Throne, and betrothed to each other. Isn't it interesting how these two have just thoroughly reversed positions? Like earlier in the season, Corliss was the one pushing his ambitions forward, and Rhaenys was the one trying to hold him back. Now Corliss is the one saying that he climbed too far, tried to grasp a star, overreached and fell. Okay, that's John Connington, but it's the same idea. Corliss has basically the same line in this scene. He climbed the fiery ladder to find out there's nothing at the top. If power is a projection, if it's a shadow on a wall, you're never going to be done. You're never going to find the real thing, the end game, because it's all coming from inside you and other people like you. Now Corliss learns that ambition cost his brother Vaymond his life. If the climb is all there is, maybe we should stop climbing. Our pursuit of the Iron Throne is at an end, he says. We shall declare for no one. As Davos says, we'll grieve for our dead, raise the living to be good to each other, and speak no more of kings. But as events have developed... Rhaenys is now the one arguing that they need to get involved. It's too late for neutrality. Rhaenyra's boys are in active danger from the Greens. And while Corlys still blames Rhaenyra for what he thinks was Lenor's death, Rhaenys points out that Rhaenyra is currently the only one preventing more death. And then we cut right to the council chamber to hear the men around her, openly acknowledging that war is a mass grave, a feast for crows. The question is just who loses fewer men by the time it's all over. That idea is the real enemy here, not any one individual. Corliss slowly makes his way to the painted table, interrupting the men arguing with Rhaenyra, who's just sitting in her chair, presumably annoyed at all the men arguing. You can see a little smile on Luke's face when Corliss is announced. He may be spared his seafaring days with the sea snake on the mend. The granddaughters Bela and Reyna take their sides next to Jason Luke, the aforementioned betrothed. Corliss gets quickly to the point. You have too few allies, and hope is not enough. You can't depend on oaths given, hell you can barely rely on blood, which Rhaenyra fucks up with banking on Baratheon blood to help her in the end of the episode. The High Towers also swore an oath, so see fuck all what that means? Rhaenyra then highlights House Valerian's oath, and after a glance at his grandchildren, Corlys says they are bound by common blood and common cause. He pledges the Valerian fleet and his house to the Black Queen, which moves Rhaenyra, as does the look she gets from Rhaenys. The Valerian fleet is a big equalizer in terms of military, but also in affecting trade and economics of the realm. Yeah, it's a nice touch on Rhaenyra's part to turn the question around on Corlys. Okay, if the Hightower's oaths meant nothing, what about yours? What are you doing here? Rhaenyra can then build on the consensus to actually start laying out her own plan, in contrast to Daemon's. More about diplomacy and economic pressure than open war. Starving out the Greens to reduce Aegon's popularity with the people, and giving Rhaenyra time to secure her allies, rather than relying on hope, which Corlys calls the fool's ally. Rhaenyra doesn't mean to land the first blow. It's still a battle of quills and ravens right now, but she is not idle. She will shore up those alliances, and with the Sea Snake's fleet and garrison at the Stepstones, they can strangle the shipping lanes, effectively cutting off King's Landing by sea. And Rhaenys will provide the Air Force, monitoring from the skies upon Maylees. Jacera says to secure the other great houses, they should send the kids on Dragonback, not Ravens. 
Those are faster and more like to remind the lords of their vows. The younger Luke will head to Storm's End, the shorter flight, while Jace will head to the Eyrie and then Winterfell, with name drops for both Jane, Aaron, and Cregan Stark, hinting likely at some Season 2 casting, and I kind of like how Cregan Stark almost feels like Stannis Baratheon from Season 1 or A Game of Thrones, a big player in the game waiting just off screen for the next act of the story. Uh, Jace learned something from Damon's little game with the Kingsguard earlier. Dragons are convincing. Problem is, as Luke will see, that his mother is right too. The other side also has dragons. Rhaenyra gives both of her sons a scroll with terms and makes them swear not to go with violence, but just with messages. The camera lingers on Luke holding onto his mother's hand one last time, again accentuating that he is clearly just a kid. Three dragons take off from Dragonstone, set to the classic Daenerys flying music that came in around season 5 of Game of Thrones. Maylees to the gullet, Jace up north, and little Luke to Storm's End. The camera follows Luke as he and Arax disappear into heavy clouds. Next, we get to Damon singing the song of his people, and by people I mean dragons. It's Matt Smith, Matt Smith showing off his pipes, singing beautifully in Valyrian as he cajoles Vermithor, the giant dragon of the old king, Jaehaerys. I love the intro shot for the dragon. Damon lays down his torch, and the camera cuts to a wide shot behind him, a pitch black screen with that faint torchlight at the bottom. But Vermithor unleashes fire into the air, lighting up the cave, lighting Damon, like with light, not with fire, and giving us a great establishing shot of the hecking chonker of a dragon. The whole thing reminds me of Tyrion in Season 6, Episode 2 of Thrones, Home, where he goes into the pyramids to unshackle Viserion and Rhaegal while recalling his childhood dreams of dragons. Great showcases for the biggest names in the cast both times, and a great use of lighting to make these incredibly tense scenes pop. There's also this great shot, reverse shot, of first Daemon reflected in the dragon's pupils, and then the dragon in Daemon's pupils. Again, where does man end and dragon begin? And like you said, Damon has that desire to not only master dragons, but at some level become a dragon, like his descendants Arian Brightflame and Aerys the Mad King. The question is why? Why try to be a god? Why not just be a person? Like Sam says in the Sam chapter we're covering tomorrow, do I have to be Sam the Slayer or Sir Piggy? Can't I just be Samwell Tarly? I think the fear is that people suffer. They hurt each other, and then they die. Dragons seem to embody a power bigger than all that. But as we'll see, dragons also suffer, hurt each other, and die. Damon can't escape his pain by taking refuge in power. He winds up only causing more pain. You can see it all just in this scene. It's like a microcosm of the whole thing. His sweet, sad song, that's his pain. That's what he doesn't want to show people. And then the dragon fire is the pain he's going to cause to try and make up for his own. And yeah, I love the edit, not just between their eyes, but then the edit from the fiery eye to the lightning and thunder over Storm's End, because everyone's favorite Damon cosplayer is about to reveal his own elemental eye. Our last big set piece of the season takes us to Shipbreaker Bay, where clouds linger over the giant drum of a castle, just waiting to unleash its storm. Luke circles and lands, but lightning in the distance illuminates Vagar just outside the courtyard, equal parts Godzilla and the T-Rex from Jurassic Park. Yeah, the monster movie atmosphere of the previous scene really ramps up here, which extends to Storm's End itself. It doesn't look much like its book counterpart, but it fits this scene so well, which I think matters more. It looks less strong and more scary. It looks chthonic, 
like an ancient temple unearthed by some scientists who are about to get more than they bargained for. There's an incredible sense of scale with Vagar, so large that she has to loom outside the castle itself, right away telling you she's too big to be domesticated. She can't be made to fit snugly inside the Game of Thrones. As if Luke wasn't already intimidated, here's the biggest dragon in the world, claimed by the trueborn prince who loves to remind everyone of that, and oh yeah, I cut out his eye. On rewatch, it reminded me of the scene in A Dance with Dragons where Davos realizes the phrase beat him to White Harbor. Somewhat different in terms of tone, of <laughs> course, but the structure is the same. When Davos sees the phrase ships, and I think the phrase is a knife went through his hopes, and he thinks about how the phrase were here and he would need to face them. It's, it's that same feeling of, oh shit, the other side got here first, they've got a bigger boat slash dragon than I do, and my diplomatic mission is about to get violent. Escorted to Lord Boros Baratheon, Luke is dismayed to find Amond already waiting, side by side with one of the Baratheon daughters he is supposedly engaged to. Love Boros's line about the House of the Dragon cannot decide who rules it, king or queen. When asked for the message, Luke confidently hands the scroll to a guardsman, not knowing that Lord Boros is unable to read. He has to holler after his maester. I think we are seeing some of Rhaenyra's quote-unquote imperfections come into play here. She knew Lord Boros was an overly proud man, but she didn't have an offer ready for him. For some, like say the mountain clans in the north, they can be won over with the appearance of a sovereign, but the prouder lords are looking for something more transactional. Plus, Rhaenyra has previously not been great with the Storm Lords. Her rather showy dismissal of the suitors back in episode 4 surely did not leave a good taste in Lord Boromund's mouth. And even in episode 1, Rhaenyra looked with caution when House Baratheon swore to Rhaenyra as heir. At least to the audience, the show has been teeing up the Baratheons as being a bit of a pickle for Rhaenyra. And I think Lord Boros is also just pricked by Rhaenyra's wording calling on him to remember his vows. Again, you have that haunted house atmosphere, the gloomy lighting even inside, the thunder rumbling, the low hums, and those those spooky choir oohs and ahs on the soundtrack. This is the same castle where Melisandre births a shadow baby in the main series, and you get that same dreadful thrill out of this. Storm's End was supposed to be the easier mission, remember that? That's why they sent Luke here while Jace went north. But Boros Baratheon would have been a tough nut to crack even if Aemond hadn't gotten here first. It's interesting to compare this to how Rhaenys and Corlys were drawn into Rhaenyra's camp earlier. Once the Baratheons were like the Valerians, playing sidekick to the Targaryens. Even more so. The Valerians were always their own proud house, but Oris Baratheon was Aegon the Conqueror's bastard brother. Now, though? Well, the Baratheons have been ruling the Stormlands on their own for quite a while. They haven't been a cadet house in living memory. If anything, Boros is eager to avoid the reputation of being a lapdog to the crown. That's why he says the House of the Dragon cannot decide who rules it. Hey, he said the thing. <laughs> if you think about it, that's as much an insult to Aemond as it is to Luke. And we see Boros enforce my roof, my rule on Aemond as well as he did in the book. Just like the dragons, the Targaryens can't easily move their vassals around like pieces on a game board. Pieces can be players in their own right. And as Targaryen legitimacy splinters, lords like Boros want to hold on to their own legitimacy. With nothing to offer, including himself, Lucerus has, you know, empty hands for the Lord of Storm's End. He is dismissed. Go home, pup. But as he's about to exit, Aemon says wait, and we get some thunder rubbling in the distance before he follows up with My Lord Strong. He demands an eye for the one he lost a long time ago. Lucerus wants no quarrel, but Aemon shows him the sapphire in his left socket. 
Maybe we all just live inside the eye of a blue-eyed giant named Amond. This was the moment I was waiting for, and it did not disappoint. We've been talking about Amond as a Damon cosplayer, imitating the style and attitude of his notorious uncle, but here, it's more like he's imitating the White Walkers, with their famous icy blue eyes. And that, of course, brings me to Euron Greyjoy, my favorite topic in Westeros. Like Amond and Damon, Euron is a second son, with royal ambitions of his own. He's even got his own eye patch. Only with Euron, the more we learn about him, the higher it seems he's trying to climb. Until you get to The Forsaken, Aaron Greyjoy's released a chapter from The Winds of Winter, where Euron reveals his master plan. Blood sacrifice on a continental scale to turn himself into a Lovecraftian god. Damon wants to be a dragon. Euron, with his pale skin, blue eye, and apocalyptic plans, seems more like he wants to be a White Walker. Which might be literally true, given the hints that Bloodraven opened Euron's third eye before deciding Bran should be the savior instead. I don't think that's what's going on with Aemond. I don't think he necessarily had the flying dreams and the three-eyed crow and whatnot. But I was struck by how Rhaenyra has this prophecy that says she has to rule Westeros because she has to stand against the icy figures coming out of the darkness to the north. And yet here, in the south, right at home, inside her own family, we have a symbolic White Walker. I go back to horror movies. The call is coming from inside the house. That which we fear and dread so much about the literal monsters can easily be recreated by human beings. It's not literal magic that made Aemond an other, so to speak. It's the violence leading up to the Civil War. And so what Aemond wants is not the end of the world like Euron. He wants the most basic, brutal form of human justice imaginable. Literally, an eye for an eye. Oh, that's great. I love getting more Euron juice out of you. Exactly right. I can imagine Euron getting the juice out of me. <laughs> Squeezing me dry like an orange. Lord Boros will have no juice on his floors, though, and sends, Luce back, <laughs> sends Luke back to his dragon. The storm has picked up immensely, a heavy rain and whipping winds. Luke scans the skies and horizon for Vagar, but sees nothing. He calms Arax before taking flight. Arax does his best to keep steady in the storm, but the growls of Vagar portend the giant she-dragon appearing above them. Amon gives chase, playing his version of chicken and having Vagar snap at Arax's heel. Arax gives Vagar the slip in some canyons below, however. I absolutely love the decision not to show the scene we get in Fire and Blood, where we stick around a little bit with Aemond and Boros, and we see that Aemond is going to exploit the little loophole in Boros' ward and go off to chase the other prince. It's so much more effective to stay with Luke, to be in his shoes, to not see Aemond coming, until he is literally right on top of them. I got chills up my spine when you just hear that growl at first, blending into the thunder like Vagar is nature herself, the wrath of the gods. What are the Baratheon words, after all? Ours is the fury. And then those heart-stopping shots of Vagar outlined in lightning. Just a glimpse is all you need. It reminds me of probably my favorite moment in The Long Night, the season 8 episode from Game of Thrones, when the Dothraki fiery swords give us just a glimpse of what they're up against, and then we cut back to everyone watching as all the fires go out. It's the horror of realizing that you are not on a level playing field. You are not moving yourself about the map. No, you are prey and you are being hunted. I'm also now just remembering in the episode where Amon tames Vagar, we are first introduced to Vagar flying behind the clouds uh, around Driftmark too. so call. there's some visual similarity between mm -hmm. that and this scene. Great call. Amon taunts the storm, but it is Arax who responds with fire, no longer serving his young rider, but going instinctually into fight mode. 
Control of the dragons is an illusion, Viserys told us back in the pilot, and that becomes manifest here. Once these folks take wing, it's all at the beast's whims that everything happens. As Luke hollers at Arax to serve him, we see Amons also start to lose control of Vagar, who takes off in hot pursuit of Arax. Luke crests above the clouds, getting a shot of sunlight, not unlike Trinity aboard the Nebuchadnezzar in Matrix Revolutions. But out of nowhere comes Vagar, who with one big chomp swallows up Luke and a good chunk of Arax too, leaving only a pair of dragon wings, Luke's cloak, and a stream of blood to fall back down to Earth. A very wicked death, one Amon seemingly did not want to be part of. Which ends up being another controversial part of this episode, which is a high bar in light of a stillbirth and Damon choking Rhaenyra earlier. I think we may even disagree on this, as Amon seems a more accessory than murderer here, which goes against what we know from Fire and Blood, and may come at the expense of Amon's character. For me, ultimately, I think what concerns me is the thematic oomph of the dragons being beyond our control, a sword without a hilt, as George describes most sorceries in A Song of Ice and Fire. It really lays bare a lot of the military strategizing earlier about the dragons, acting as if they are just helicopters or fighter jets you can control and pilot freely. Power comes with a cost in Westeros, often the cost of life. I really like the dragons being a beast beyond the control of these folks. A dragon is no slave, Daenerys told us way back when. Or to quote another awesome blonde queen, you never had control, that's the illusion. I was overwhelmed by the power of this place, but I made a mistake too. I didn't have enough respect for that power, and it's out now. The only thing that matters now are the people we love. They're out there where people are dying. Of course, I'm quoting Dr. Ellie Sadler from Jurassic Park. The other half of the equation is Amon, who perhaps comes off as less villainous than he should, and brings to mind what exactly was he planning on doing up there. In the moment and then on rewatch, Amon is playing a dangerous game, buzzing Arax and having Vagar threaten with his teeth. It feels like a young it feels like young teens racing their cars, the most macabre and fantastical version of American graffiti. There's a risk someone dies, but they feel invincible. And why wouldn't they on Dragonback? Amon also is not yet a murderer, I guess as far as we know. He's a champion of the training yard, not the battlefield. I think what will matter for his character will be how he takes this to the queen and acts going forward. We still have a slew of Amon war crimes to come, so slow playing some of that, I'm okay with taking a wait and see approach to see how they handle it. I also think as Amon continues to cosplay as Damon, we can see where he clearly isn't Damon. While Damon and Caraxes, even perhaps Rhaenyra and Syrax, seem like one and the same, and Damon even seems capable of wooing other dragons, Amon is still a teen riding a nuclear bomb. He doesn't have that level of control, and when his big old war criminal she-dragon gets that hot blood running in her, there's nothing he can do but hold on for dear life. I will concede it is a bit of a give and take. I think this choice ups the tragedy and thematic thrust of the series, but I don't begrudge anyone who would prefer book Amon's out-and-out villainy, which gets shorted in the exchange. I may be a little less invested in Amon's character, and I know I'm not invested in the whitewashing debates about Team Black or Team Green. I'm just here to watch it burn and get really sad about it in the end. As always, you make terrific points, and I'm trying to figure out why this at first didn't quite work for me. It did much more so on rewatch. I think in the same way in the last episode, I, I don't think Egon is actually a mysterious character and you need a whole fetch quest to learn more about. 
I felt like this was addressing a problem that didn't exist. Like, Aemond is not lacking a motivation here. I could see a story where he, he wants revenge, he gets it, and that makes everything worse. And I feel like that's a that's a tight, effective story on its own. I, or I, I can easily imagine a scenario, because I really like Aemond showing regret immediately, as it suddenly got way too real for him. But I... It would have made more sense to me if he had deliberately killed Luke and then felt that, whereas I was kind of thrown off by him deciding halfway through that's not what he wanted to do. I think a lot of it comes back to what you were saying earlier about how effectively they're getting across how, how, how what, a ch- what a child Luke feels like, how frail and young and defenseless he seems. That works so well early on in the episode. I feel like it almost works against them here mm-hmm. because it's hard mm-hmm. for me to accept Aemond as equally out of control because he's just so much more dashing and adult looking and older... I don't, I, he doesn't come off to me like a hapless teenager riding a nuke in the same way that Luke does. Because he's, right. he's, he is quite literally a cackling supervillain at this point. And he really seems to have an edge on Luke at first, and then he he just kind of doesn't anymore. But th- that all being said, even if I don't think the execution was perfect, I do I love the idea of it as you're laying it out. And on, when I was rewatching this episode, I appreciated it a lot more because I can see that that idea being set up throughout the whole episode and actually the whole season. Viserys said the dragons aren't truly in our power. Rhaenyra said they're going to immediately escalate the war. And Rhaenys held back when she had the greens at her mercy, so she didn't have to go through exactly this. Humans are frail and fragile, and we can't control the forces we unleash. There is something really powerful about both Luke and Aemond yelling for the dragons to stop, to no avail. The war will soon spill out beyond any one individual's control. So it's not only a literal struggle between the dragons, it's a metaphorical struggle between the conscious and the subconscious. The dragons operate on the latter, like the direwolves do, realizing the murderous intentions here even if Luke and Aemond don't at a conscious level. I love your comparison to that moment in Matrix Revolutions when they, they break through the cloud cover, as Luke and Arax are fully visible and so vulnerable to Vagar's revenge. Aemond gets far more than he bargained for, and you can see on his face that there's no satisfaction in it. Just as it's easier for Damon to talk about burning all the greens than it would have been for Rhaenys to do it, killing your half-brother, even one who hurt you, is different when it's for real. And as you say, we'll see how it plays out going forward. In Fire and Blood, we don't really see much of the dragons going rogue, but maybe they'll incorporate that more into the show. And totally agreed on Aemond. He has got much darker territory still to roam. <laughs> and I can see this pushing him down that same path in different ways. So while I was, I was initially thrown off... I appreciate it a lot more on rewatch, and that's that's how it works a lot of the time with with any show. I think a lot of the uh, the instant response culture that we both gleefully take part in can sometimes inhibit the moment you need to kind of reflect and consider the context. And that's when even twenty four hours, I think, has I'm I'm much more into this than I was. And I think it's also just a little harder with adaptation because you're immediately confronted with the dissonance between what you had read in the book or what you had presumed based on what you read on the book and then what is presented with you. And it does take, you know, like you say, instant reaction culture. It's not really how art works. Art is really about, you know, longstanding relationships you have with works. You know, some things might work in the moment, but then not work five years down the line for you. It's kind of an ongoing dialogue you have with a piece of art. So um, I, I know some of the problems I've had with this season have been assuaged just by talking with you or just talking with other people writ large. So, And to clarify to my lovely co-host, when I said I wasn't as invested in Amon Targaryen, that wasn't a shot at him, but more that... It the, should be. <laughs> it, I mean, I wanted it to be, but sadly it's not. It's just uh, none of these characters really, besides maybe Damon, have like a real character to them in the books besides more their actions. And like we kind of intuit what their characters are. So I guess... I, I'm a little okay with them going 
or at least exploring them in a somewhat different ways than they are on page. This season of television starts with Emma Darcy's words, but it ends with them giving a silent, physical performance. Damon comes to her at the painted table, her general still talking strategy and having some laughs while they're at it. The camera follows Damon to the head of the table, where Rhaenyra turns her back to it to absorb the news of Lucerus. Rhaenyra briefly breaks, hunching over for just a second, clearly distraught. But she stands up straight, turns around, with both tears and steel in her eyes. A determined face and a sinister take on the dragon-flying musical piece leads us into our credits. Yeah, we've come full circle, not just to Emma Darcy's words, but also to the final shot of the first episode. A close-up frontal shot of Rhaenyra's face as she was publicly proclaimed her father's heir. It's one last example of how this episode pulls together the whole season to reckon with what has changed and what hasn't. Rhaenyra is still her father's heir, as far as she's concerned. Everything else has flipped around on her, right down to being played by a different person, and the nervous pride in her face from the premiere has given way to grief and rage. Finally, she and Damon are on the same page, in the worst possible way. Rhaenyra already went through a stillbirth in this episode, and now she's lost one of the living, breathing boys she raised. The one she comforted and reassured earlier in the episode. The one she promised would get to come into his own just like she did. Gone. Never to grow up. All that restraint Rhaenys praised her for is gone. You can see it on Emma Darcy's face. As she told Luke, your destiny chooses you. And Rhaenyra has been chosen by fire and blood. And that is going to wrap us up for episode 10 and also season 1 of House of the Dragon. This has been such a fucking delight. I've had so much fun recording these episodes, writing these episodes, recording them with Manu. And even when the discourse is at its worst, I'm just so glad to be talking to people I know and love about Westeros again. So, thank you, House of the Dragon. Thank you, HBO. Eh, I don't know if I want to go by thanking HBO. Thank you, Ryan Condal and everyone who works on House of the Dragon. Absolute great time. Can't wait to come back in 2028 or whenever George R.R. Martin length of time goes by before we get House of the Dragon back on the air again. Yeah, no, it's been, first of all, just a pleasure to cover it with you, one of the sharpest minds to talk about anything with, but especially the world of Westeros. And it's been a pleasure to, you know, bring my voice and my opinions to all the listeners out there. I know I'm still fairly new to the gig. Um, I hit, we started covering A Storm of Swords and House of the Dragon basically simultaneously, so it's been quite a load, but um, it's a great way to, like, kind of work out those cobwebs, you know, from being out of Westeros since the end of the previous show. Um, so it's been great. It's been great interacting with the community i know our slack's been going crazy over these episodes just a lot of fun and even though i begrudge and sometimes mean tweet about the discourse i really do love to be back in the story full time with my co-host and with all of you out there so carrying on with our usual song of ice and fire gig our next episode is going to be on a storm of swords samwell 2 we're recording that episode later this week that's going to be up for patrons starting on thursday and out for everyone on monday my most recent Star Wars episode, my second episode on Revenge of the Sith, is out for all $5 and above patrons right now over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Definitely check that out. And uh, my next Lord of the Rings episode is going to be out on a couple weeks. It's going to be out a couple weeks from now, covering the end of Book 5, Chapter 8, The Houses of Healing. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we would really appreciate that. It always helps people find us. You can shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com or follow us on, or follow us on Twitter at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. 
And you can follow me at Port Clinton on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find our now ongoing coverage of Andor at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Very excited about that. Really been loving Andor. Can't wait to listen to more you and M on it. It's great stuff. The other M. Yes, I podcast with two people named M, which is really Aren't funny. You lucky? And my initials are M and M, so I am just. I didn't even put that together. Wow, <laughs> this is spooky now. This was a conspiracy all along. This was a prophecy. This was the song of ice and fire. Just in time for Halloween, we got something spooky on the podcast. Absolutely, my favorite season. What could be better than that? So uh, thank you again for listening uh, all the way through season one of House of the Dragon. We've had a great time, and we hope you stick around as we got lots and lots of great Madocast content to come out in the weeks and months to come. 